together to Psalm number 6. Psalm number 6. And uh, we're going to look at this psalm tonight. Um, uh, last week we looked at uh, Second Chronicles and uh, Jehoshaphat, as Jehoshaphat um, faced uh, invading armies. And uh, God's word to him, a word through the prophet to Jehoshaphat, uh, enabled Jehoshaphat to respond in praise to God, uh, to go out and praise God. And through the praises of the people, God w- was then moved. God responded. Uh, the, the, the word went out that God was going to defeat the armies. And all the people decided that all they had left to do was to worship. And we saw that as a beautiful example and model for you and I and the importance of praise in our lives. What God does through our praise and what we ought to do to fight, to continue to stir up our hearts to praise and to worship God because we put the powers of darkness to flight through it. We saw that with with Psalm 8. And so... That is so important. And we're going to see in many ways the same kind of model here, but coming at it in a different way in Psalm number 6. And so uh, let's read that together. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In shale, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my bones. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. One of the things that uh, uh, has been noted about the the Psalms in particular, is that in comparison to other faiths, is that rarely do you find the uh, uh, adherents of that faith speaking to their God in such a bold and confident way. Uh, almost in a shocking way sometimes. And uh, no other book uh, among religious books uh, enables the worshiper to speak to God in such a way. Not only boldly, but intimately. Assuming a great deal about the one who is speaking. And uh, that's what this psalm does. It assumes assumes a relationship already. He's not trying to get in from outside, but he is speaking to God in such a way that shows that he is already on the inside. And it's out of that confidence that Uh, out of that relationship, rather, that he is speaking to God so boldly. And that is true in in relationships. He says, oh, how how can you speak to that person 
in such a way? How can you, well, I'm, I, I know that person. Uh, they're part of my family, or they're part of my church, or I've been a close friend of theirs, and so you can speak quite openly and boldly. And this is, this is uh, the, the nature of the way in which the psalmist is speaking here. Again, we don't know what the historical situation was, uh, but there is a mixture here of uh, the, uh, the discipline of God, the anger of God against the, uh, the psalmist and uh, the enemies that have been tormenting the psalmist. Uh, he speaks of foes in verse 7 and in 8, all workers of iniquity and so on. Uh, we know that that was uh, the case in David's life and the life of other kings where because of disobedience uh, on the part of the king, God raised up enemies out of maybe sometimes their own house as it was with David or Solomon when Rehoboam was raised up against uh, Solomon and so on. So all of these examples are uh, show that it can be a mixture of God's direct displeasure, but using the, uh, the uh, agency of the foes of the, the, the person. And that can be the same as, as the psalmist is working through all of this. The same can be said of us as well. That trouble often comes into our lives as a, a, through other people. That God will deal with us he will discipline us or chastise us through other people in our lives. It could be in our church. It could be in our workplace, wherever that might be. That God will use the, maybe the sinful intentions of others. Uh, he will use that to humble us, to exercise us, to pull us apart and to put us back together again. Uh, we were uh, seeing this morning uh, how God uses the attack and the persecution of the evil world, the world system set against the church for His purposes. And so we found in Revelation chapter 11 where uh, the beast uh, comes up out of the great abyss, out of hell itself, and attacks the church in such painful ways in a variety of ways. And the devil is resourceful. He uses variety. He doesn't just stick to one way of doing it. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be all. could be emotional. Any uh, number of ways in which the devil attacks uh, the church and attacks Christians individually. And yet, all of that is under the umbrella of God. What is God doing in that? Just like we saw. What was God doing in the, the devil attacking Job? Attacking his body. Attacking his emotions. Attacking his, his, uh, his spirit. All of these ways, it, it just seemed, if you looked at Job, he was just disintegrating. There, there was no hope. In fact, all the other people who were coming, his friends, to comfort him, saying, you are obviously God-forsaken. This is the only conclusion that can come. God has left you. And you can imagine how painful that would have been uh, 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 on Job. Well, we saw with the psalmist that that was true back in, in uh, uh, Psalm 3. 
There are many saying of my soul, there is no salvation for God in Him. It would be one thing for someone to come to you and say, you're not saved. Or God has left you. But when many people show up at your door and they say the same thing, that would really crush your soul. Many are saying of me, there is no help for him in God. He is forsaken. And so the many are being used by God are they, they, to, to do something in the psalmist's life. To discipline him, to break him down, and to build him back up again. And this is what we see here uh, in this psalm. We see his suffering. We see his, uh, his Savior and his security. That's the, these are the three things that we want to see out of this psalm. His suffering, his Savior, and ultimately his security. First, his suffering. His suffering comes in various ways. Uh, physical suffering uh, and spiritual suffering. David is in great distress. The, the whole uh, person of David is swept up in this, in his suffering, in his body and his soul his spirit, in his mind, his emotions. Whether it be the, 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 the physical struggles that he's having or the emotional struggles as he's weeping throughout the night and the loss of sleep and all of those things that are happening to David, God is stretching him in incredible ways. He senses the anger of God upon him, perhaps, for his sin. And we see that here in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We, uh, I mean, you can see if we go back and, and if it's tied in to Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 perhaps with the rebellion of Absalom, David definitely would have thought that what was happening to him was the Lord's chastisement. Shimei, as, as they were going out of the city, was throwing dust and rocks at David and says, you're getting your, your own dessert back. This is God that's doing this to you. And he, he is going out and David is broken. And David knows there's a, an element in tr of truth in that. That he has to flee Jerusalem because his son and his close friends have betrayed him and they are coming into the city. So, we can see how those two elements are hanging together. There's personal punishment that, uh, 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 that, that is coming down upon David for his sin, but he's using the agency of perhaps Absalom or some other person uh, or group of people to bring that to pass. And... He engages here in all sorts of physical uh, uh, struggles. I am languishing. I am troubled. But you see it uh, particularly in verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And so it's taking an emotional and physical toll upon David. 
He's beginning to lose his sleep because he spends the night weeping. His pillow is wet with tears, wet with sorrow. And it's beginning to take a real toll upon him. Now whether it's, it's uh, an enemy coming against them or some other thing that may crop up in a person's life, it may not always be an enemy that is out there trying to do this to you. It could be any number of things. It could be simply life getting on top of you. Life beginning to crush you. De- periods of depression sweeping over you. And again, leading to uh, sleepless nights. You're up all night. You're worried. Uh, somebody perhaps has said something to you. Uh, a, a problem has come about. It could be you got bad news about uh, uh, any number of things. And you can't sleep because there is this problem that has cropped up. Again, we are never ever as God's people to see these things as random. That's one of the big mistakes that we make. Oh, here's this situation that's come in my life. Here's this person that's giving me trouble. Here's this issue at work. And you say, well, I guess it doesn't have any meaning attached to it. It's just random. No, it's not. All things work together for good. God is causing those things. It has been appointed unto you not only to believe, but to suffer. Listen to those words. It has been appointed unto you to suffer. And God has appointed the circumstances under which those trials will take place. And this is uh, what David is seeing and understanding. He knows that these foes have come against him not randomly, but ordered by God. God's doing something. And sometimes we can read that a little bit more at sometimes, sometimes than others. Certainly David could read it as, as plainly as words on a page when it came to Absalom. There's no way in which David could uh, get around the fact that all of this was happening to him because of what he had done many years before. And so, it's all coming home to roost. So even though David still has a job to do, he has to overcome his enemy, but what he's seeing and understanding is, Lord, You are disciplining me. You are bringing this wrath upon me. There were other times in David's life where that was the case as well. When he numbered Israel. When he numbered the, the troops in Israel. Well, why was that wrong? It was wrong because God was to be their strength. God was to be their salvation. Not the chariots, not the horses. And so this plague came upon Israel to chasten David and to show David, look, your strength doesn't lie there. David, again, had to do some deep soul searching. David had to be mature and say, look, God is teaching me something in this. It may come as a direct result of what you have done, or it may be simply because God is disciplining you. God is is helping you to overcome sinful habits, sinful thoughts, sinful practices in your life. But we have had times like that, I'm sure, each one of us, where we have 
felt the physical impact. And, and oftentimes, that's how it manifests itself for us in a majority of cases. Sleepless nights. And sleepless nights leads to tiredness. And tiredness leads to irritability. And irritability leads to all sorts of other problems at work and at home and so on. And so all of this trouble then starts to come down upon us. And David is, is struggling. He's struggling physically. He's struggling uh, uh, spiritually. He says in verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He's, he's feeling it in his bones. It's not a metaphor for something. He's not being simply poetic. We can, we, know, we can know the side effects physically of sin in our lives. The physical effects of worry. And not only does sleeplessness lead to other problems, it can lead to heart problems, it can lead to many other issues in our lives. Uh, but uh, it, it can, worry can lead to things like ulcers. Uh, it, it can have a direct impact upon us. And so David can say, I am languishing. The, the idea there is uh, uh, the idea of a plant wilting. He feels so little strength within him. No vitality. He feels like his life is wasting away. He's troubled. and, and Again, literally, it's more like terrified. His soul was trembling. And so he is struggling spiritually. But one of the uh, 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 greatest ways in which he is troubled is he is troubled by the distance that he feels from God. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Turn. In other words, turn yourself back toward me. I'm feeling this distance uh, from you. He feels far away from God. Sense of being disapproved by God is, uh, is, is one thing. That's bad enough, but uh, to feel God being far away, this is something more than David can bear. Right from the get-go, right before David was even a king, when he was a young man keeping the sheep, he enjoyed this the presence and fellowship of God. Way, way back. When he was a teenager, who knows, way, going perhaps back to when he, he was a, a, a young, small boy. And David knew the enjoyment of being in God's presence. And he loved that. He loved going to the house of God. He loved worshiping God. This is not something that happened to him when he became king. David, from a young and tender age, was someone who loved and enjoyed the presence of God. But now that was in jeopardy. He, of all the ways in which he is being afflicted, this is probably the, the, the strongest one. And I think there's a hint there telling us so because David was a Christ figure. David was a picture of Christ. And the thing which afflicted the soul of Jesus the most was not the whipping, was not the nails, was not the crown of thorns, was not the desertion by his disciples, but the loudest, most painful words we hear out of the mouth of Jesus were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David being a, a figure of Christ, 
and being a, for us a, a template of what Jesus was going to be like, he was suffering here particularly the most. And yet it is, out, it is at that very point where Jesus himself suffered that we find the answer to that question of the distance of God, of the lack of the nearness of God. We go to the Word and we find when we hear those words on the cross, Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? I find the antidote in those very words. And I say to myself, He was cast out that I might never be cast out. God is near to me even when I feel Him distant. And those sentiments are piled on in the New Testament. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We see the person of Jesus even though He was denied by Peter and forsaken by the twelve. The moment He comes back and appears before them, He says, Peace be unto you. His first passion, His first desire for them was to say, you are reconciled. I have come for you. I'm not waiting for you to come to Me. I'm, I'm taking the initiative in coming into this upper room where you are hiding with fear. Feeling like you have committed the worst crime after you boasted that you would never do it. And there you did it. You can imagine why they would feel so far from Jesus. And Jesus knows that. You see? That's why we've often said and pointed out those words of Jesus. Go and tell my disciples and Peter that I go to Galilee. Why would he point out Peter? Because he knew that Peter was, specific, was, was uh, most devastated by what had happened. They had all left. They had all forsaken. But Peter boasted the most. And yet, our Good Shepherd understands and He knows what it is to be distant. He knows what it is to be cut off. He knows what it is to be forsaken. And He does not want that for His children. And He comes to them. And when we read those stories, when we read those accounts in the Gospel of Jesus coming immediately after the resurrection and saying, peace be unto you, we are to say, that's what I am to that's where that's I'm to put myself in Peter's place. And this loss of God, the sense of God's presence is to be dispelled by the, the idea of faith. That doesn't mean that we don't reckon with what has brought that those feelings in our hearts. That doesn't mean that we treat lightly the sin that has separated us from God. No, we 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 think about that, we pray about that and say, what I've done, what I've said has has grieved God's Holy Spirit. Yet, where do I go? Where do I go with my sense of a loss of God's presence? I go to the One. I go to the Shepherd. I go to Jesus. Who Himself was cast out that I may not be. And I don't hold, I don't maintain that distance with God, but I go back. 
and I, I can pray this prayer. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of Your steadfast love. And that's covenant language there. I am in covenant with You. I have known Your steadfast love. And no greater measure have we known that than in Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is our foundation. So we don't see our troubles as random. We understand right off the bat that God is doing something. Right? Sometimes we, we want to connect the dots and say, ah, oh, this is because this. And it's not always that clear. Oh, I know why this has happened, because I did that. And sometimes people will tell you, this is what's happening to you because that. And they may not be, they be like Job's friends who are completely off the, the charts. We don't always know, but we know God is doing something. We know that all things are working together and that if we are going through times of affliction, sometimes it's important to go to God and say, Lord, what is it that I need to learn from this? Lord, there's this person at work. There's this trouble in, in, in with my cousin down the road or there's this problem uh, in, in church or... Lord, what is it? And you take that to God. And you, the answers may not be forthcoming, but you start to, to think. And you say, well, this might be something I could change in that relationship. Maybe I was a bit too hard here. Or maybe I wasn't a good listener over there. And you begin to think through all of these things. And so, in, in the silence, we, as we're working through those things, we can find the answers. In fact, just at lunchtime today, Max was telling me about hearing a podcast or something like that where the minister simply stood up and said, love one another. <laughs> this is all he said. And then he sat back down. And everything became quite awkward as he sat back down in his chair and the people were just kind of left and he stood up again and said, love one another. And then he would sit back down and, and uh, as the, the, the story unfolded, as Max related it to me, people began to, in the silence, started to talk to one another. And uh, they began to build bonds with one another and, and uh, help start to figure out how they could help one another in one another's lives. But they... Max wasn't suggesting that as a recipe for, for a, a good sermon or anything like that, but it was just kind of an odd thing that out of this weird experience, out of the silence, when people were forced to think about it, uh, these were some of the things that they thought about. And so even in the silence, God can speak to us. And in all of that, as I was saying, God is at the work of discipline. O Lord, verse 1, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He knew and understood that there was a work of discipline that he was going through. But he was praying that God would mitigate the the, the anger and the wrath against him. That it wouldn't be as painful. That he would pull back the things that were now happening to him. 
nevertheless, the, the idea of discipline is there. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying as he picks up on the writer uh, of Proverbs in those words that uh, Peter read for us in chapter 12. Uh, where he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. So according to Hebrews, when God disciplines us, there is the, 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 the chance that we could despise it. We could despise it by seeing it as random, of no value. See, that's why I said at the beginning that when troubles, these troubles do come upon us, we can just say, this has no value in my life. And where does that lead? It leads to anger and bitterness and resentment. When you can't understand something, why it's happening. But this is the perspective that Christians have. This is the perspective that the child of God has when you begin with this truth that everything that goes on in my life has been ordered by God. That all things are working, conspiring together for my holiness and my Christ-likeness. And so when I start there, it just immediately takes the sting out. It takes the stinger out of the situation and say, look, I can deal with this because I know that it's coming from the hand of the Heavenly Father. And it's flowing out of what Jesus did. And so verse 3, Hebrews 12, Consider Him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners. This is what's happening to the psalmist. He's enduring discipline, the discipline of the Lord through the agency of the wicked, through the evil of men. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And he was the innocent. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. Jesus didn't deserve, in other words, what was happening to him. Yet, He endured hostility from sinners against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The psalmist here is in danger of that, of growing weary, of just having wave upon wave. Lord, I'm feeling Your anger. I'm feeling Your, your, your discipline upon me. And it's heavy every day. And I feel crushed. Every night my tears are wetting my pillow. You may not be that kind of person where you, you're up all night weeping into your pillow. Maybe you're the more stoic kind. But grief and trouble can take its toll in other ways. It can manifest itself. Now the, the Hebrew people were very outward, outwardly emotional in that way. And could weep. And maybe that's a, a better recipe for some of us, where we could, where it would be better to be able to cry and cry and cry and get it out. That's how David expressed his grief. And but for others, it it manifests itself in other ways. But uh, he is he is 
connecting that. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. So the things that we're going through, whether it's trouble at work or trouble in family or trouble wherever, we automatically step back and say, the Lord is in it. The Lord is in it. It becomes more clear for us than even the psalmist as to where this is coming from. It should be more clear for us. Now David makes, draws the direct line. He says, Lord, all of this is coming upon me because of your wrath and your discipline and your anger against me, and you're using the agency of others. Now Christians, all the more because of what Jesus did and the goal of salvation is not just to save us, but to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. The Christian ought to have their spiritual antenna up even more to say, ah, rather than getting bitter and angry and uh, being uh, really terrible about this, I ought to steal myself and to bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, please Show me. You don't have to tell me why this is happening. As, as Job went to God, and God doesn't, isn't obligated to give us the answers for everything that happens in our lives, but at least to say, Lord, please show me how I can grow through this situation. It may not be my fault. It may be my fault. But even if it's not your fault, even if it's an unjust coming at you through the agency of other people or other situations, you can still say, Lord, how can I grow in this moment? That's why the writer of Hebrews is saying this. You have forgotten. Have you forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons? My son. Right off the bat, we have a reason for what God is doing. Sonship, family, covenant. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Even our Lord Jesus, it was said of Him that He learned obedience through the things that He saw the things that he suffered. How did he suffer? In many, many ways. From people, from God's direct intervention by sending him out and causing him to fast for 40 days in the wilderness. By any number of ways in his life, the sinless Son of God learned. And you could, that, that shows us that you can learn even when you're perfect. What do I mean by that? It means that Jesus went from one stage of obedience, perfect obedience, to another stage of more fuller obedience. And then fuller. And then more was loaded on his shoulders, like a person in a gym putting on weights. And he overcame that and more and more until he goes to the cross. When the ultimate test comes and the Father opens up the cup of damnation, and Jesus looks into it, and 
he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, he's going from one level of obedience. He learned obedience. That's, that's something so strange for us to hear of Jesus. But what I'm saying is that if that is true of Jesus, how much more is it ought to be true of you and I so that we're able to consciously think through those challenges that are going to come on Monday morning, that are going to come through your week at work or wherever it may be, and to say there's a possibility I could face a challenge here, here, and here. Isn't that the way it is with war? The generals lay out the map. Okay, uh, we could, we're vulnerable here, and we're vulnerable there. We better beef up those uh, uh, places, and uh, we really need to take stock and move our reinforcements over here so that we can be uh, ready to meet the battle, or we're ready to meet the enemy. And so you plan, you're forward thinking about your week and about situations. And you say, how can I draw upon God's grace, the promises of His Word? How can I remind myself of the sufficiency that I have in Jesus to overcome these things? And so he turns to God in all of these ways. This is what the psalmist does. So James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, James wants to get rid of this whole idea that things are random, that things are pointless. No, he says, Count it. Now, not only see them for what they are, as coming from the hand of God, but count it all joy because of what God's doing in it. He's disciplining you. It shows that He loves you. It shows that you are His child. If you weren't, He wouldn't bother with you. But now you're in His gymnasium. Now he, you're saying, oh, He must have a real plan for me. He's cleaning me up. He's preparing me for something. What is He preparing me for? I don't know. But He's preparing me for He certainly was preparing Jesus. And if we are His sons and daughters, as Jesus was a son, and Jesus says, your life is going to be modeled on my life, then there will be things He is going to prepare you for. And that could be the very reason why you're going through what you're going through now, or what you went through last week or last year. And so David takes this to his Savior. He is quick to take it to God because he knows that God is, is merciful. Look at verses 4 and 5 there. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And so he, he's, he's calling out to God, turn away your anger. Be gracious to me. Heal me. Do not rebuke me in your anger. Remember me. He, he's saying, in death here there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you praise? Now the Old Testament did not have as a fully worked out idea of the, ever, of, of the afterlife as say you might find in the New Testament. But the principle here for us is the same. That David is drawing upon his desire. And it's not just... David kind of 
pulling an ace out of his sleeve and saying, oh, I'll use this with God. He can't say no to this as a way to manipulate God. Because as we've seen, that was David's whole ethos. What is his nickname? He is the man after God's own heart. That's who David was. He's not just pulling this out of, as an ace out of his sleeve to say, I've got God up against the wall with this one. He says, Lord, I want to be delivered. I want to come out from under this wrath and under this anger so that I can come out into the full blown light with a broad place to stand so I can give you praise and thanks to say, come and let me tell you what the Lord did for my soul. This is David's desire to glorify God. So this may be for David, the most important of all of his pleas. Because this is why David was called by God. I will appoint a man after my own heart. He will do my will. And David showed that time and again. And so out of that comes this new boldness. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 8. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The psalm starts that way, doesn't it? In the first four verses, the word Lord is seen about five times. Lord, rebuke me not. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. You see what he's doing? Everything is on the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And so he, every word that's coming out of his mouth is directed toward God. And so he ends in the same fashion. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard. The Lord has heard my plea. Verse 9. The Lord accepts my prayer. Again, it's that rapid fire as David emerges out of this state of fear and being worn down and being discouraged. He emerges with a greater confidence. He knows that not only will the Lord bless him, but the Lord will deal with his enemies. Again, you see a template. You see a picture there with Jesus. As Jesus is suffering innocently under the hand of God at the hand of his tormentors he emerges from the grave he is exalted to the right hand of God and now he is judge of all the earth and he uses these same words in the sermon on the mount when he says many will come to me on that day and say lord lord have we not done this that and the other and I will say unto them, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, all you workers of evil. This is where Jesus gets that saying. Because Jesus has emerged on the other side as judge of all the earth. And not only has Jesus come out the other side delivered by the Father, but now he sees all injustices put right, he sees the judgment on the wicked. He sees the fruit of his suffering 
come to full fruition, not only in the salvation of his people, but in the judging of the wicked. And David says the same as he emerges, confident here. God has heard his prayer, and that not only will he be helped, but that the wicked will be judged. One commentator says that just as certain as David is that his prayers have been accepted, just so assured is he of the complete overthrow of his enemies. This is what happens when confidence returns, when the Lord blesses again. He takes on a spirit of clarity. He has accepted his own station. He has accepted that God is doing something in his life, using the agency of his evil foes. But now as he emerges out of that, he knows that God has heard his plea, that God has not turned a deaf ear, that he's not far away, that he's indeed close. That God is close to those who are of a broken spirit and contrite heart. He's not far off. David was imagining that God was, a, was far off, but God was close to David. And he says that here, God has heard my prayer. And all you, my foes, who are boasting in my overthrow and my demise, you will be put to shame. It is you who will stumble and fall. And so, friends, we are called upon to again see these psalms and model them for ourselves. When we find ourselves going through whatever it is, and we may not be able to draw a straight line and say, this is because of that, and this is because of that, we may not be able to. It may be just a deep sorrow that you're feeling. You say, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know how it came here. It just landed on my lap Monday morning or Wednesday afternoon, a deep sorrow, an anguish, an anxiety. I don't know, but I know that God is in it. I know that it has been appointed unto me not only to believe, but to suffer. And God is, wants to draw near to me in this situation. How can I count my blessings? How can I confess the goodness of God even in this situation? Nothing gives God more praise than when all outward temporal blessings have been taken from us. And you're still there saying, God has given, God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, let's pray.